you may have seen pictures on the news over the last while of assets being seized by the Criminal Assets Bureau uh, during 21 morning raids across eight counties on a Midlands drug gang. Six cars, thousands in cash, fake 20 euro notes, cocaine, Rolex watches, designer handbags, designer clothes, and the list goes on. Well, my first guest today says it's all in in a day's work for the Criminal Assets Bureau. He's now retired as a detective guard who served over 20 years with CAB as a Bureau officer. Uh, Henry Ainsworth, you're very welcome indeed to the programme. Thank you, Mario. As you see these things going on, do you miss the thrill of it, like the the adrenaline rush that it must be for the Gardaí? Well, yes, it's... uh it's a big knee jerk when you retire and you go away from um, the day to day investigations. And yeah. then at the end of the time when you go out to your raids and you start seizing assets and you're bringing back these assets to the Bureau in one sense or the other. Yeah. Um, yes, it's, 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 it's a huge change in, in, in your daily life. Right. And, uh, but you know, it is enjoyable to go out and it's great to be able to, to seize these assets. And you know, have the iconic picture, one of the last seizures I was involved in, where we took um, over 20-odd vehicles from one organised crime gang. And there's an iconic photograph of a vehicle transporter taking eight, car, eight vehicles away uh, all in one go. Um, and that sends out a huge, powerful message, both to the criminals and to the public. And that the public's more important. It's the public to show that the Criminal Assets Bureau, which mm. is an independent statutory body in its own right, um, separate from the guards, is going out seizing the, these items. It, but but, but you, when you say separate from the guards, I mean, you were a guard. Yes, but the um, best way I can explain it is back in 1996 when the Bureau was being put together and, yeah. uh, and it was the, 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 the law, it was an extraordinary piece of legislation um, when you say that, you mean extraordinarily good? Extraordinarily good. Yeah. Um, and but both extraordinarily good in on one sense, but if we cast our mind back to 1996, when Jerry McCabe was assassinated in the 7th of June, I think it was, and Veronica was assassinated on the 26th of June. By the 25th of July of 1996, the Criminal Assets Bureau Act had passed the second stage of Dáil Airden. Uh, Nor Owens was the... Nor Owen and uh, Rory Quinn at the time were two people instrumental in uh, getting that law through. Yeah. Eamon Leahy, I think, was the se- senior counsel and Barry Galvin, the, the Cork Solicitor sister from Cork, Cork yeah. were all involved in drafting the legislation and putting it together and getting yeah. it up and running. It was an extraordinary time to see that that legislation got put through and it was an extraordinary time to see that by October the same year it was written into law. It just showed to the public, um, and it still demonstrates to the public, that if there's a will and a political will to do things, um, the Oireachtas can, can. do it and will do it. And there's no excuse for them not to be able to bring laws through as, as quickly as they can do yeah. like that. Well, I suppose with what we call our new politics now, it makes it even more difficult because you kind of need a consensus uh, across the House. But we leave that aside for the moment. Are these always dawn raids? 
Not necessarily, but generally speaking, yes, dawn raids. And um, the Bureau was an extraordinary place. And you were hinting there, Joe, guards and Bureau. The Criminal Assets Bureau, as I said, is a statutory body stand on its own. What it is, is a multi-agency organisation. Um, you have the revenue, the social welfare, the customs, police, you have civil servants, administration, and you also have specialists, the forensic accountants, the computer analysts, all working together. Right. Um, there, when I started there, there was three teams. There's now eight teams. Um, and there's one important letter that's omitted from um, the Bureau, and that's I. There's no I in team. As the eight teams work, uh, in, as individual teams, when they all come together as, a, as the Criminal Assets Bureau, they work together as one big giant team when required. Right. And everybody has the same title. Yes. Um, you're, we, when we go into the Bureau, it doesn't matter if you're you know, a higher inspector in, in, in taxes or, or a guard or wherever else, we get the title of a Bureau Officer. Right. And the Bureau Officer is akin to and a special agent like in the FBI or that you get a special title but what that brings is I bring my powers of, of a police person into the Criminal Assets Bureau Revenue bring their powers in Right And they work in teams as a big room Yeah Eight to ten people From sitting day room. one you wanted to be in there From the day one yes I had this thing that I just I just saw that I wanted to be in the Criminal Assets Bureau. Right. Now, I wasn't in the Bureau from day one. I Bureau was put together as, uh, as it came into legislation in October that had actually been up and running slightly beforehand. And I knew I wanted to be there, wanted to be there, and did my best to get there. And it, I, I was surprised when um, I, in May um, 1997, I had been taken out of Black Rock guard station where I'd served yeah. and had been working up in guard headquarters uh, we all had to do a time up there driving everybody from ministers to prisoners around the country in what they called details and um, I was returned to my station in early May with what they called the pink form and I was told to go to the superintendent in Black Rock station so I went up to him and I was going oh my god what have I done wrong now and I was handed another pink form and told to go to the criminal assets bureau and that was what you had been looking for. It puzzles me to a certain extent when you hear about Rolex watches. Like, why why would they want more than one Rolex watch? I mean, it's it's a for, it's a form of currency and it's a form of a status symbol with them. We've seen Rolex watches, a basic Rolex watch, um, about eight, nine thousand, ten thousand euro. And they'll send it off to a jeweller and encrust it with another fifty thousand euros worth of diamonds into it. But I mean, if how is that currency? If you have a watch with or without diamonds, but if you fifty thousand worth of diamonds in it, it's obviously worth more. But how do you realise that? It's like the bartering system. You can go over, you go to Dublin Airport, arrive in Dubai Airport, and hand it over as currency to somebody else, and they'll sell it on. That's it, is That's it? That's as simple as that. Yeah. So it, they're that movable, aroundable, so oh, yes. to speak. Oh, yes. Cars? Cars, uh, they've been using cars and uh, as, as a currency, as a form of currency. They're bringing them in. Um, you'll have garages set up 
which means then as a criminal organisation they can have a number of cars in a garage and literally arrive in and uh, decide to take, well I'll take the BMW today and the, the Garda network might know of that they have these vehicles available to them. And then they can take the cars back out of the country and sell them back in the UK or sell them on here um, and have had the use of them. Right. Um, and that, that's how they've been using uh, some of the garages around around the country. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Well, I mean, we're aware of it, that, you know, people who were reared in modest enough houses, maybe council houses yeah. somewhere, two, three bed semi or whatever, um, they really like to stay living in their own area. Yes, they're comfortable. It's like they're comfortable in their own clothes and they don't want to move out of the areas and they'll... They'll put the money into the houses and redevelop the houses. Uh, and what do they do to the houses? In in modern times, um, as criminals have gone up the ladder and have had money available to them, they've been putting in bulletproof glass, they've been putting in reinforced doors, CCTV systems, luxury uh, bathroom suites, luxury kitchens, doing up the houses to top spec spending the money that they've from the real gotten gains right. and putting them into their properties. And they have a man space I gather at oh, the back of them. So, some of them do yes they have gyms and they'll have their own man caves in the back of them. What? Or what? women caves as well. What's, what's a man cave? <laughs> a man cave is where Joe, they can bring the friends in and have a couple of beers and watch the, 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 the watch videos and watch games and boxing matches and whatever else and up in the big screens. Right. Um, that's the man cave. Right okay. Sounds like everybody's living room, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a big room, a big living room, but there's no expense spared. And they can, they have the money, they can do it. But it's surprising, Joe. As I say, I was in the bureau for twenty years, and one of the one of the things that was said to me was that Joe, probably by the time twelve years would come and go, it'd be mainly a tax bureau that would be yeah. operating the tax acts more than the proceeds of crime acts. Yes. 20, 22 years on, we're still taking proceeds of crime applications. We're still bringing these applications to the court, still seizing. And what brings you to that? Is that observing people living beyond what appears to be their means? No, it's... In the earlier days, uh, if you can cast yourself back to the early 90s and the Gay Burn Show, may you rest in peace, and... Uh, you had Barry Galvin sat yeah. in Rube on a particular night and explained how these um, crime lords had become untouchable and that you know, if a guard stopped them and found them cash in anything else, they couldn't seize the cash, they couldn't do anything. And Barry was uh, very forthright in what he said. Yeah. And he was absolutely castigated by politicians at the time. Um, and as I say, when Jerry McCabe and Veronica were assassinated, the crosshairs of the guns were coming down on the politicians and on the judiciary. Why were the politicians cross with him for saying that? No, no, that? Well, they, were, they were cross because they didn't want to believe that this was happening in modern Ireland. All oh, right. And um, as I said, the crosshairs, of the guns were falling down on the judiciary and on, on the politicians because if they could take out a police person and they could take out a journalist, they'd have no compulsion but taking out a, a member of the judiciary or the government. And the fear was there. And the fear was in the Irish public at the time. You have to go back and take a look. The shock of um, when those Jer two events. Were, were, those yeah. two events. Like yeah. They got out. Of, they got out of, uh, van, out of jeeps and just mowed down the police at the time. 
uh, Veronica was shot for the works she was doing, um, and that was that was horrible to happen. But this all emerged out of it, and the bureau the bureau came out oh. rose out of it like, right. like the phoenix out of ashes. Okay, now wh- what do you do with all the stuff that you that you get or take? Seize, I think well, is the word. The, yeah, all the items that are seized. Eventually, it depends on the orders we get from the court. Um, we might get a disposal order, or it has to be retained for the seven years, um, and then we get an order. Just to go through that again. You have to retain everything for seven years. It, it depends on, on if you get a section three order. Uh, that means that we have to retain it for for seven years. Um, if we get if we can get. Um, Agreement with the other party, we can look for a Section 4 order and we can dispose of it within the seven years. Um, but some of the cases have taken seven years and some have taken 20 years to yeah. do it, to, to finalise in relation to it. Yeah. Um, and these these assets have to be looked after, have to be minded. If it's property, we have to put it into, into property management systems. If it's uh, cash and jewellery and that, we can put it either in a deposit or put it into saves, saves until we get such time we get a disposal order to, right. to sell the property. What about horses? Horses, we've... Um, I think the, the first horse we had was, I think, Latino Magic. That goes back to the early 2000s. Um, it was a, a particular person we had investigated, had horses, and as part of the agreement, we ended up with a horse. And... Um, that oh. horse ran, and with cabs ownership under the cabs flag, and uh, the funny one there was uh, when it ran. Most of us in the bureau didn't know it was running, and the chief bureau officer at the time knew and put a bet on it and made a couple of bob out of it. It was Felix McKenna, Fe- was it? Poor old Felix, yes, <laughs> <laughs> the cute Monaghan man, and. Uh, that was the first one. They have another horse there now at the moment um, in, in training as such. And what, what in the name of the Lord is Cab doing? Training horses? Well, what else are you going to do with it? It's, 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 it's an asset. We have, every asset that you seize, yeah. you have to assess it. You have to see, is it is it Jedi White first? If, it, if, if you pick up a diamond ring, is it a genuine diamond ring? Right, yeah. If it's, is, 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 is the problems with it? And then you take advices from, in this case, the trainers. And if it, it's an asset that has to uh, be used yeah. as such and get the best value out of it. No point having an asset of a horse that's a racehorse that uh, do you put it out to grass? You leave it, you leave it in training. And it's... And every time the horse wins a race, it goes up in value. Yes. And it's Joe Public at the end of the day gets the benefit out of it. Well, when the, when the money is realised, it doesn't. Sounds so completely bizarre. And I mean, well, sure, the our, our horse friend, could break a leg tomorrow. Look, that 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 can happen and mm. does happen. Um, but that's a, that's a risk. If you're damned if you do, and you're damned if, if you, you don't. don't. Yeah. So cab pays the training fees. Well, that, that's why you have to speak to the present chief bureau officer, and he, whatever the financial arrangements are there, I don't, I'm, I'm not privy to. Right. Okay. It just sounds so utterly bizarre, you know, as a concept. Well, our our our. our um, and where does the cab money go? The cab money, at the end of the day, goes to the exchequer. Um, at the end of the year, every year, we the bureau publishes a report. Yeah. And sets out. What monies go now? Yeah. What people don't realise is some of those monies 
will come from seven years prior to it okay. or ten years or whatever else. Yeah. So that's why there's such a, an up and down um, variance in uh, the statistics in relation to cab. Yeah. Some some years you'll do twelve proceeds of crime. This year, uh, sorry, last year, I think they did close to 34 proceeds of crime applications. So it's down the road between the next five and seven years that they start coming on stream. Right. right? Yeah. Um, the money goes into the exchequer for the, to the benefit of the bigger pool. Yeah. Um, that I don't agree with. And I think that should be looked at seriously. And I think. To do what with it? I think this, the Irish economy is doing well, everything's doing fine at the minute, and I think here we are uh, with proceeds of crime money, um, and the proceeds of, of the ill-gotten gains, and you, there's a programme the BBC where you actually see the benefits of the proceeds of ill-gotten gains, a proportion of that, if not all of it, goes to community projects. And I think at this stage now, the the monies that are coming in from... Uh, the proceeds of crime applications um, should be put into a pot managed by uh, a local policing committee uh, to do the disbursements on it for the benefit of the communities. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with you know, drug programmes or anything else. You could, we put, put in community vans, put in, look at the different community structures that are out there. And OK, Dublin, Cork and Limerick were probably the bigger areas around yeah. where drug, bigger proceeds of crime cases are coming yeah. from. But I think it's, it's a countrywide. There's drugs everywhere. It's every corner of the country, yeah. and it is harrowing to see the effects it has both on the drug takers, but also on the families. Yeah. And I think now it's time to sit back and have a real good hard look at. There's money coming in. Can we put it to a good use, and let the the the, the proceeds of ill-gotten gains go for go, the benefit for yeah. the community? And yeah. I think it's very very much something that has to be thought of hard and long. Okay, now you're you're an interesting person in that your dad was a very famous guard, hmm. um, and infamous maybe in some ways as well. Did you always want to follow in his footsteps? No. Um, I've had a, a long and varied career. Um, I started off in transport business delivering um, Excuse me. at a young age, about 13. We used to do the Ring of Donegal and the Ring of Cork and Kerry in a day, delivering aluminium shoes with a local transport firm here in Dublin. And then I ended up building and working as a labourer and uh, we refurbished one or two houses there in Beaver Row uh, back nearly 40 years ago. Um, and then after that, then we... Uh, Ended up in doing Lansavain in Bolton Street and I ended up in motor management. Got married, did an interview for the guards in 82. Never thought I'd ever be in the guards. And when there was the oncoming of a recession back in 86 and having Joe, a young wife, uh, I started up. So I had to make a decision and I made a decision and went to Temple Moor. Right. And I did my six months and 67 quid a week, which was an awful shock to And system. what role was your dad playing at that stage? Remind people of who your dad was. My father was Thomas Joseph Ainsworth. He retired as a deputy commissioner in Angarda, Chicago. Um, he was highly involved uh, from the rank of superintendent upwards in the modernisation of the force. Um, he was one of the most usual characters in that when he was a guard, he was the personal secretary to the commissioner. And when he was this commissioner himself, he was ended up as personal secretary to the commissioner as well. Right. So it had come full circle. But in um, 
19, in the, the late 60s, he was charged in to start to modernise the force. Um, and he was involved in setting up to a national communication system for the guards. Right. And then when, I think in 1968, he was made barrack master. Uh, he modernised the fleet, uh, went from the Black Mariahs to the coloured cars right. and the whole new modernisation of it. Yeah, from from the public's point of view. Where my father would come from the public's point of view, yes. Uh, the, there was a scandal back in 1982 in relation to telephone telephone tapping at the time. But like I was in my early 20s, I had nothing to do with the guards that were involved in it. But my recollection of that was quite simple. Um, he was... Uh, tasked at the time. Um, there was a lot of politics going on. Uh, there was a lot of um, intrigue going on. And uh, we had... How do you mean intrigue? We had, at that time, there was the, the government rose and fall a couple of times. Yes. Um, there was intrigue, uh, as in Charlie Hoy and uh, uh, Doherty were there at the moment. Sean Doherty. And Doherty. Yeah. And, uh, my father, from what my recollection was, he, he was brought in and he was told to investigate leaks from the, the cabinet table um, under the, fish, uh, the Official Secrets Act. Right. He had to investigate it. He investigated that. Uh, that entailed uh, putting on taps on certain uh, phones, including journalists. And um, my recollection of it is, and even talked to him in later years, they proved fruitless and he looked for them to be taken, uh, taken off. Um, that was used in a political gain and um, at the end of the day, my father and uh, the commissioner at the time, Paddy McLaughlin, retired from the force. You think they were thrown under the bus effectively, don't you? Well, it's not so much thrown under the bus, it's uh, it's politics. Fall guy. Fall guys, but it's it's politics and the nature of the time. Um, every person in the, from the rank of superintendent up is a political appointment in the force. That has changed uh, to a great extent. It still have to be. So was he, like, would he have been called a Fianna Fáil deputy commissioner or a Fianna Gael deputy commissioner? I mean, was it along those political lines if, if, that you got those if, roles? If you got, no, it's not so much you got those roles. It's as if you got promoted by a particular government, you'd be rubber stamped as, uh, uh, as it. Can I ask you just to move in there a, a yeah. tiny bit for me? Um, if, if you got promoted... If you get promoted, your name will go forward and yeah. the government of the day would promote. And how would they know you if you were coming up through the ranks? I didn't do it, so... Well, you, you've observed other oh, people I've, doing it. I've observed it. people doing it, yes. You get, you, get, you, get known, um, you get known. And as you go up through the ranks, uh, you would have... Uh, different councillors and different politicians would be in contact with their with their local superintendents and local chiefs. A local superintendent is is is, is a, especially in the country is is a very high profile job, um, and you're known by everybody. And yeah, that's how that's how that system works. And councillors can ring you up as superintendent. Yeah. To what end? If if they have a problem, if they have a roads problem, they need something done. They. Councillors and TDs are very are very strong. They they will lobby to get things done for their for their constituents, and there's nothing wrong with that. But 
I should have thought that the Gordi would operate on a code and by rules and they're an institution and that you shouldn't have political interference. Well, it's not political interference. It's, it's, it's politicians trying to do the best for the communities. And now we have policing committees around the country who are involved. And again, things have got a lot more PC and a, and a lot more credible, a lot better and a lot more transparent. Where you have the policing committees and even... Um, Clavin, the president of the Bureau of Legal Officer, he has travelled around to all the policing committees uh, around the country and explained to them what CAB is about and how it works. Yeah. And so, as I say, everything has got more transparent now than it ever ever was before. Right. And which that, sounds like a good idea. And which is, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's the way it should be. Yeah. Now, you go into the Gordy and your father is Mr. Bigwig. Uh, how is that? Does everybody look at you and say, well, easy for him. Should the dad will be looking after him? Well, no. That's when I joined the Guards um, back in 86, my father was well retired at that stage. All right, OK, yeah. Um, yes, his name would have been infamous around the place and he'd been well regarded in some quarters and some people would look at you a different way. But I always felt when I joined the Guards originally, I started off at a minus 10 because Joe, you, know, you had all the luggage that came with it. Plus, his father was Joe, you know, a top guard at the time, and yeah. you would have people who would be wary of you, carrying stories back and whatever else. But uh, no, it took a bit of time right. to get up to the even scale. Why was your father known as Two Gun Joe? Um, I, was, I said it at, uh, afterwards. Uh, Sometimes there was three and four guns around the place. Um, Dad was, as I said, uh, involved in the modernisation of the force. Um, the Webley was the gun of the choice at the time, which is an old English gun. Um, in his time, he had brought in the water PPK and different the Aussie machine gun and all the bits and pieces to modernise the armaments of the force at the time. And he was, from what I understand, um, when he'd go to Kilbride, he could hop a can off the ground with a, with a shooting like with, with the gun, and uh, he was a crack shot. But he had a huge interest in guns and equipment, and uh, technology was it was his thing. And he would take them, look at them, and assess them, and see do the viability of them for the force. So yes, there would be sometimes he'd have his own personal issue. He'd have an extra gun there to bring home. Um, he did have a little six millimetre gun at one stage, a tiny little thing, what we call the dress gun. I thought gun. this only happened in America. Not at all. And uh, he, he, he was a person who was quite inquisitive. Um, he, was, he used to really surprise me, come home and the computer would be out on the desk at home and he'd be rebuilding it because right. there was something had gone wrong. Yeah. And he had that huge mind and intellect to investigate and see what was best. Right. And he would make decisions. And yes, that's why he got the name, that particular name. Yeah. That's only well, one of many you, names. Did you, as a family, did you have protection as you were growing up, uh, given the times that were in it? There was a particular time um, during the Bobby Sands and the Black Flag protests that uh, the family was under protection. We had uh, a guard in the front of the house in a box and uh, escorts to and from work. Um, uh, not so much for myself, but you know, for other family members. Um, it was there at the time. Um, I was a young fellow, so I was out and about doing my yeah, own thing. And, right, yeah. uh, and 
avoid it as much as I possibly could. Right. Now, you say that the peace process, you believe, started in your kitchen. Yes, it part of it started in the kitchen. And we used to have visits from Jack Herman, who's the RUC chief, uh, chief constable, and Trevor Forbes, his assistant chief constable, used to come down. There were meetings in the house. It was a time when cross-border um, relations weren't great, and it was a thing my father was a great believer in, in that if, uh, if there's division, you won't get results. And you have to have the joined up thinking between the Northern Police and the Irish Police and uh, constant uh, swapping of information. And that, it, it was funny that uh, in the 80s, when I was growing up and hadn't taken much cognizance of what was going on, um, and then to end up in details in 96, and um, I had... I was very fortunate in that it was the fir- I think it was the first rugby match between the guards and the RUC and we were in the RUC sports grounds up in Belfast afterwards and Jack Herman came in and he looked across at me and he smiled and we sat down and we had a chat of all times at the visits and he was asking me how the old fellow was and uh, telling him and all the bits and pieces but that started relationships and cross-border intelligence and uh some people frowned on the idea of it, um, of the idea of Joe, you know, that there was uh, communication and trying to build up a relationship between the two organisations. Yeah. And that was the foundation then. That has carried on. Um, I've seen it through my service, through the different searches we've done in, uh, between North South uh, with the, the with the PSNI and ourselves um, on John Boyd or border operations. And it's great to see even at the moment um, that present commissioner and the chief constable have got together with joint policing investigations and that's the way forward we have we have a border situation that needs to be controlled and it needs to be policed and it can't be policed um, in the sense of you have north south criminals don't recognize north south and we have to go along and counteract that right and it needs a lot more um, a lot more communication and a lot more uh, uh, joined up thinking uh, in relation to investigations. Yeah, because, I mean, there's still a lot of people stunned by what was happening uh, in Derry Lane and, uh, you know, with all the the attacks on the Quinn organisation and all that. To a layperson, it seems bizarre that there could have been up to 70 incidents uh, before a man nearly died uh, and being tortured. Anyway, Shinshke Lela, and you're out of it now. So, but talking about the border, um, and we're going to be very careful about what we say about anyone because we don't want to uh, raise their ire in any way. Uh, you had to draw a yellow line down the border for Slab Murphy when you were going into his place. Well, it wasn't me. It's as part of uh, the operation. Um, and again, as I said, it's one of those operations where we work closely with the PSNI um, and everything had to be synchronised. And um, it, that, there's a particular photograph that was published in the, I think, 2018 CAB report. And there's a picture which has three people standing in it 
on the left you have the PSNI, on the right you have a guard, on the right of that guard you have a bureau officer. And between them is a, a yellow line, it's a yellow taped line, which indicated what was north and what was south. Um, and to Slab's particular yard uh, straddle, straddles the border and he can go in his front door in southern Ireland and go out the back door in the northern Ireland. Yes, and there's lots of houses, lots of premises. Lots of, of them, of yeah. Premises. Including a former Minister for Justice telling yes, us that. Th- yes. th- th- lots of those along the border. Um, and again, when you're carrying out searches, you have to be 100% correct. And I think the purpose of that photograph also, demonstra- also demonstrates quite clearly the difficulty that is there in relation to policing operations between North and South. And that's why I think, Joe, the joint policing uh, investigations that are going on at the moment yeah. um, are, are extremely good and uh, and they need, we need, need more to the communities up, up in along the border. The, some of the greatest uh, people that you could sit down and chat with and talk with, good honest to God, hardworking people. And then you have the other element of it, people hiding behind the so-called distance. And they're no more distance than the man on the moon, the criminals, pure out and out criminals. And that's what they should be branded, not hiding behind the veils of things past. Right, OK. You, 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 to a certain extent, you've, you've met, it's like a who's who um, of household names. Uh, very early on in your career, um, you met the general. Well, you were assigned to the general. Um, no, I, I hadn't. Well, I knew of the general. I saw the general. Um, I was join, as I joined the guards in '86. Uh, yes, but um, when I landed in the bureau in 1997, Felix McKenna came down and dished out certain jobs, and uh, I was either fortunate or unfortunate at the time. And he drew a file on my desk and he said, you'd be fit to investigate that in his best man in an accent. And we investigated. And that case started and stopped a couple of times with different legal advices. And eventually in 2005, um, we got the property um, and we sold the property and we put it on the market. And it's still a three-bedroomed house in Cooper Downs, and it made nine hundred and four thousand euro at the time at auction. A very expensive house. It is for a shelf because what we had to do with the house when we got it, um, it was left with two pigeon coops, the full width of the garden, at the back of the house. It had ten years of rubbish between the two coops. There was forty bicycles, uh, a plough, uh, a Hamburg stand, uh, all parked and thrown in the back of it. And then there was chalices that were stolen from the local Protestant uh, church in in Palmerston in Rapmines. Out found the back garden? Out the back garden. Uh, we took out, I think it was 14 roll-on, roll-off uh, skips out of the house at that stage. Um, so we, and it was graffitied, so we had to, and they also placed wooden boards with nails underneath it, uh, um, covered with grass sods, so when you stand off the patio area onto it, they were looking to damage people. So we found those before. Sorry, say that to me again. They had impregnated boards with six-inch nails yeah. and put grass sods over it so that you wouldn't see them and you'd walk onto it and literally walk onto a trap as such. Um, but that didn't happen. We found them and we discarded them. But, uh, yeah, we sold that property. It was one of our better sales. 
Um, we sold a property down. Tell me about the sale, because a crying baby played a role. Oh, they did, yes. It was an interesting one in that um, guns put the property, we sold a public auction. Um, it's one of the ways uh, we can sell property uh, by public auction um, or by tender. But we did this in public auction and a number of people turned up. Um, the bidding had started and there were developers in the back of the place and a young couple. And as the bidding was going up, the child starts to cry and the investors said, we'll give it to a family. And the family got it. Uh, they didn't live in it. They they were investors themselves, <laughs> and they they rented the house out afterwards. Right, but you had to do up the house. Well, we had to strip the house out. Uh, we'd get contractors in, got contractors in to clean the place, strip the place, and we painted it. Right, okay. Head to toe. The woman next door was pleased enough. Yes, because she sold her house at a, at a handsome profit to two or three years later, and. Uh, was delighted and gave me a twelve-year bottle of whiskey for my for 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 for, for, for my good deed, as our, for the viewers' good deed as such. Um, yes, they were funny and they were good times to to reflect back on. Right, and I mean, when you take somebody like him with such a reputation for violence, uh, is it? Do are people nervous about bidding for these places? <laughs> there's uh, there's apprehension, yes. But um, once people have decided they're moving out, there's court orders there. They don't want to be in breach of court orders and we can sell the property. Um, and like I, I, I've sold lots of properties in my career um, with, with sort of the, the, the estate agent's hat on. Various properties from um, warehouses to equestrian centres to, to um, residential homes. And people buy them. Yes, they don't get. They don't go for the full market value, of course. Right. Um, and uh, some would have apprehension, but generally speaking, we've had touch wood, no problems, and uh, property has moved on. Right. Now, you, John Gilligan was one. I remember Jessbrook was hmm. the name of the place. I remember interviewing his wife. Uh, that went on for a very, very long time. That case started, as I said, ninety six. Yeah. Um, I wasn't involved in the original investigation, and somewhere back in two thousand six, uh, most of the people who were involved in the investigation had either retired or had been promoted and moved on and gone from the bureau. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, uh, being the lone survivor of Team Room One, as it was called at the time, the case ended up on my desk, and. Um, Frank Casty was a bureau legal officer at the time, and it has sort of paused uh, for a period um, because of the workings of the high court system, Supreme Court system, and appeals going back and forth, yeah. and trying to move things forward. Anyway, eventually we looked for a receivership over the property. I discovered that uh, the property was being dealt with. There were people renting the lands, and there were horses on it. But what shocked me even more was when I went down to see how dilapidated it had become and overgrown. Um, I'd photographed it, uh, and I'd always carry a camera, uh, especially when I joined the Bureau. You never know when you'd need video uh, camera evidence. And a camera a picture paints a thousand words. Yeah. And I took a series of photographs, and I brought them back, um, made my report to the Bureau Legal Office and the Chief Bureau Office at the time, and decided, look, we should go for receivership, get, uh, which is where we could actually f physically 
take over the running and looking after the property because it wasn't being looked after. And yes, we, we, we eventually got it. It was hard fought in the High Court because the, the Gillies, under free legal aid, were able to and uh, test every facet of the, the CAB Act, and um, which they're entitled to do, absolutely yeah, no absolutely. problem. And it's testimony to it. It has stood, stood, stood the testimony of time. And we eventually got uh, receivership over the property, that particular property. Um, but Judge Feeney, who was the, uh, the judge at the time, um, was extremely fair. Like he, he left the Gillians to live on the properties that were homes of theirs until the determination of all the Supreme Court. And he, he, was, he, was, he was a fantastic, fantastic judge, as I said, both in his fairness and how he treated both the Bureau and how he treated the defendants. Yeah. Um, and great analytical mind as well. Um, but he did he did very good uh, orders and all his orders have stood to testimony all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court have held him. A very, very honourable man. He died suddenly and he was a great, huge loss to the judiciary, right. in my view. OK. But, but by the way, you, you said, I saw in the notes, that you had a very good relationship with John Gilligan's wife. Well, I've always... I've always uh, was brought up to the fact that you treat those as, as you treat yourself and, yeah. and your own family, and I'd always treat those that, in as much as the uh, our husband is a criminal and the, 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 the involved in criminality, I'd always treat people with as much respect as I could possibly give them. Yes, and I've sat down with the Gilligans, had tea with them down in their own houses over time, and discussed parts of the case and discussed uh, Joe. Certain things, yes. In, in, I was appointed as being a liaison officer between the bureau and the Gilligans, and that happens regularly enough. That uh, the guard is the face of the bureau, um, yeah. where the rest of the staff have anonymity, um, and you will deal with and work with uh, with, 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 with people who are defending cases. So it's not all storming and shouting and shooting. No, God, shooting is the last thing you'll ever do because you'll have G-suck down your back and everything else and you don't want that. It's well, you don't want to be shooting anybody. Or, or anybody. It's not it's a like good a, idea. No, to, to, to have a possession of a gun and to have to carry a gun it brings with it huge responsibilities. Um, we have the Armed Response Unit and the ERU don't get any extra allowances and put their lives in danger every single day of the week to protect yourself, myself and guards. Um, right. And it is a huge responsibility. No, it's not all about guns and doors going in and whatever else. Um, it, it's it's this the after part of it as well and the stuff that's not even spoken about, uh, that, that's there. It's, 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 it's interesting work, but sit down. You have to sit down and treat people, as I say, you treat your own, your own family. And with that. respect. With respect. And respect is, it gets you a long, long, long way. Uh, there's no point to having Joe people's back up all the time, every time you meet them. And that's a wrong approach too. Um, right. Just give and take. Um, the uh, couple of callers were on. What an interesting man. I could listen all day to him. That comes from Carmel. Fascinating interview, Marion. Riveting stuff and relevant for today too. Another says it makes absolute sense for proceeds of crime 
to be seen to be reinvested in youth, sporting and community projects. Areas destroyed by drug crime and intimidation need support and resources, which is more or less what you were just saying. Mm. Marion, pity to see this fabulous guard retiring at such a young age. Imagine all the valuable information and superb intelligence that is being lost. Now, that comes up time and time and time again. Well, yes, and it's it happens in all, all organisations. Um, and the, there's, there's a huge loss when people go, people yeah. who do knowledge with people go. Um, that's where uh, some organisations I've seen in Europe put together what they call compendiums, where you take your knowledge, you write it down, so when someone new comes in, it's handed over. Yeah. Right? Um, that happens. Other organisations will re-employ people as researchers and bring them back as researchers yeah. for a period of time. Um, that happens a lot in the UK because there's such a shortage within the police organisations. Um, there are things of, that, that could all be looked at. Right. What are you doing? Um, as I said to you earlier on, I've an interesting career. My has been wide and varied from before I joined the Guards to whatever else. Yeah. Um, as you know, I retired in 2017 and in 2018, I got a phone call from an ex-PSNI officer who happened to be working for a company in uh, an EU-funded company in Kosovo and he asked me what I'd come across. And I said, sure, why not? I'll go to Kosovo. Why not? I'd do nothing here at home but from learning how to cook that I always said I'd try and do. Yeah. And anyway, I went over to Kosovo and the, the job I was asked me to do was to assess the asset management office in Kosovo and that was one part of it and the other part of it was to take a look at the legislation and where would a similar organisation like CAB fit within their, the, their framework. Now Kosovo is a young country, it's, uh, ten, it's 11 years now after receiving its independence. Uh, the average wage I think is about €250 Euro a month yet you'll still see brands making new BMWs going down the road, 7 Series BMWs. Uh, a bit reminds me of Joe, uh, all the Mercs going to Farmley back in 2007, uh, in, in certain ways like that. Um, but it, there's huge similarities between Kosovo and Ireland, right. in my view. So that's your doing. So you're, you're really continuing on yes, and using I've, your skills. Yes, and I've been invited to Macedonia to give... Uh, give uh, training and the, the seizing, preservation and disposal of assets. Right. And that's from both physical assets to uh, financial assets to cryptocurrencies, etc. Yeah. Uh, in relation to those things. Um, so Bitcoin. We, Bitcoins, yes. Yeah. I've had it explained to me many times and I still don't understand it. It's so. uh, Well, the seizing of it even, is even a bit more difficult. <laughs> um, but there are one or two private companies now. Wilson's are, uh, it's a company, it's an Irish company and they have got contracts now with the likes of the Maltese and the Belgians and they go out and seize and sell it for them. Right. OK, well, listen, it's uh, very nice to talk to you and very nice uh, to, to talk to somebody who found their work so satisfactory uh, and, of course, valuable to all of us. Henry well, Ainsworth, what? Well, one thing I would say to you. Yeah. Uh, people, people, and I'll, I'll I'm, go, go, go on yeah. in a People uh, will knock the guards and everything else it is a fantastic institution to work with. Um, the opportunities there are huge. Every day's daily experience is different. Uh, and You know, I, I, I appreciate that you would say that, 
But we've come through some very, very difficult times with, yes. the, with the guard. The, there was Donegal, there was the whole business with Morris McCabe. You know, there was the whole business of the Secretary General of the Department. Like, it's not all. No, it's not all. And But the day, like, your researcher asked me what was the most hairiest moment I've ever had in the Bureau. Yeah. One of the things about the Bureau is we do our operation orders and we can go along and minimise the risk. When your local guard, uh, either in Blackrock or Donnybrook or wherever else, gets a call, he doesn't know or she doesn't know what's behind the door. I could do my risk assessment beforehand and know what, was, what might come out behind the door. One of my most hairy moments were actually out in Black Rock where I had ended up with broken ribs, written out, for, out of cars um, and had people attacking and machetes coming out of houses. And their things are dealt with by the guards on a daily basis. The people who are driving around the white Scott cars who do the first, uh, first knock on the door and they don't get enough praise. Our politicians will stand up and knock the guards in Dáil Éireann, but they won't stand up when our, our, our guards, the defenders of the public, um, both on duty and, and are, are off duty, defend and detect and prevent serious crime. Do you think the, the politicians use the guardie in that sense? I, they use them as a big whip and they'll always jump up to make a name for themselves they'll never jump up to say about the good of the guards it's rare it's ever happened I've talked to my own politicians in my own area since I retired and said it to them and they'd say they try and do something about it but they've not, they have done nothing about it But isn't it equally important that we can have absolute confidence in right up the system in the Gardaí, I mean, there were pretty harsh things said at the Morris Tribunal. There are, yes, and I, I'd, I'd agree with them. I would agree with Joe, yeah. anything that is hard. Yeah. We'd have to learn about our mistakes. The the Guards is a force that's coming up to its 100th anniversary. Yeah. We inherited all the structures from uh, Imperial... Fado, 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 right. Fado. Yeah. They all came in, both in the Army and the Guards and everything else. And maybe it's time that uh, we sat back and we... Reassessed um, of how we police. There's been screaming. Politicians have screamed for um, transport police. Maybe it's a case now with Brexit coming down the road that we take a look and say, okay, we have a, a demoralised army at the moment. We had all the ships tied up in Cork Harbour there last month. Um, I saw it myself when I was going to France. Every single ship tied up to going for repairs, and the rest of them tied up inside the inner harbour. Um, Maybe we should look, be looking at taking our, our customs, our immigration, our traffic corps, uh, the airport police, the port and docks police, amalgamate them into one force and call them the border and transport police and take that function away from the guards and let the guards go on, get on with the business well, of protecting the state and protecting uh, the communities. OK, just before um, we finish up, when you were leaving, what was morale like? In the the guards or in the bureau, in the guards, morale is is was low in in it. You as I said, you had the tribunals and everything else that has a huge knock on effect against the morale of people. Um, so actions of a few 
being portrayed and laid on the shoulders of the rest of the, of the force. It's very unfair in a certain ways because the good that's been done out there on a daily basis is just not um, emphasised enough. And I think at this stage, I think every guard should have a body cam because in my day, if you were at an incident, people would come over and give you assistance. Now the first thing that happens is you look around and everybody's got a camera up, a phone up, and who's going to be first on the media, who can sell it to the media. Right, OK. And you don't get assistance. Yeah. But they need body cams and they need them in the cars and they need them in on, on their purses. And it's the first thing GSOC say and the first thing GSOC look for on any incident is CCT footage. OK. Anyway. OK. Listen, nice to talk to you, uh, Henry Ainsworth, and uh, enjoy your retirement. And thank you very much indeed for coming in. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.